Welcome to the Impact Gap Podcast. We are a graduate student-run, patient-centered podcast group based at the University of Toronto. Our mission is to provide a platform for patients and advocates to share their important patient issues and their experiences within our healthcare system. My name is Amelia, and I usually spend most of my time behind the scenes at Impact Gap as an audio engineer. Before this episode, I will be stepping in front of the microphone to talk with our guest, Claudia Tursini, about our shared chronic illness, inflammatory bowel disease. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD for short, is a term used to describe chronic inflammation of the digestive tract. There are two main types of IBD, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The two types differ based on the location of inflammation. In Crohn's disease, inflammation targets the entire digestive tract, whereas in ulcerative colitis, inflammation mainly occurs in the colon, which is also the large intestine. Common symptoms include diarrhea, blood and stool, abdominal pain and cramping, fatigue, and unintentional weight loss. Symptoms are cyclical, with many patients experiencing alternating periods of flares and remission. Treatment strategies include medications or surgery to remove inflamed intestinal areas. According to Crohn's and Colitis Canada, people are most commonly diagnosed before the age of 30. Now you may have heard of the term IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, but IBS is not the same as IBD, despite having symptoms in common. In IBD, inflammation causes permanent physical damage to the gut lining, and this damage can be seen during imaging through a colonoscopy test. IBD also increases the risk of colon cancer. My conversation with our guest today, Claudia Tersini, focuses on IBD. Claudia is the founder of the Young Adult Community for Crohn's and Colitis, or YAC for short, and it's a community that supports young adults living with IBD in the process of transitioning from pediatric to adult care. She also served as the honorary chair for the York Region chapter of the 2020 Gutsy Walk. Today, she shares her journey living with IBD, particularly ulcerative colitis. Claudia, thank you for uh, coming on our show today. It's nice to meet you virtually. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right into your diagnosis story. Um, how did this all start? What was the beginning of your journey like? And how did you realize, you know, you had ulcerative colitis? So I was diagnosed when I was 10, which meant that I was in grade five. So um, I remember thinking that this was something that would go away. Um, my main symptom was bloody diarrhea and just frequency. Like I was in the washroom all day, every day. And I tried to hide this from as many people as I could for as long as I could. Um, I was embarrassed by the symptoms. No need to expose myself and embarrass myself for something that was going to resolve on its own. Um, and then finally, one night, my mom caught me on the way to the washroom in the middle of the night. Um, so she was horrified, obviously, of what she saw in the toilet. I was like, oh my God, we need to go to the hospital. But uh, first, we went to a hospital where they said that I had salmonella poisoning and that it would just go away, that it was just some sort of weird viral infection, um, nothing to be concerned about, go home, see what happens in two weeks. And then 
I don't even think I lasted the whole two weeks. I was losing so much blood um, and losing so much weight and just felt awful. I think I almost fainted one day as well, which kind of prompted my mom to do a little bit more digging into what was going on. Um, And then we went to go see my family doctor at the time, who was an amazing family medicine physician. And he said, I don't really know exactly what's wrong with you, but just by your blood work and the few things that I've done so far, I can see your inflammatory markers are really elevated. I suggest that you go to sick kids for further workup. Um, So ultimately that led to me being hospitalized for three weeks over Valentine's Day. And yeah, then that was when I finally had colonoscopies and everything and finally got my diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. So it took about a month, maybe two months, which I know is short compared to a lot of patients go go years without a diagnosis. So I'm grateful for that. But at the time, it was obviously scary and something unknown. I had no family history at the time. Um, And then after my diagnosis, my dad was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis maybe about a year and a half after me. Um, And then that's when everything kind of started making sense. Okay, this is probably where I got this from. It's not just some random disease that only I have out of everyone in my family. Um, And then a couple years after me, four years after me, um, my youngest sister, we're four years apart. So she ended up being 10 as well. When she got diagnosed, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So it ended up being going from just some random viral infection to IBD, just me, and then turned into a whole family affair. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that it's affected your whole family. Um, But I guess this having also your family kind of, you know, experiencing this, do you feel like that it's been helpful in terms of the support system and not feeling necessarily alone? Yeah, definitely. I do think it's been helpful having others who know exactly what I'm going through, you know, um, on the way to school, my dad used to drop us off at the go train. If I had to go to the washroom on the way, he was like, yep, no worries. Would like go across four lanes of traffic just to get me into Tim Hortons so that I could go on the way to school. So just knowing that my family members totally get it and can not only sympathize, but empathize with what I'm going through has been a really good support system for me. Absolutely. And it's so helpful having that support system because I feel like this whole, uh, you know, chronic illness can really feel, it's really debilitating and it also feels really isolating. Um, Something I was wondering was, um, let's talk colonoscopies for a second. So you had your colonoscopy when you were 10 years old. Um, I can't even imagine what that was like. I had my first colonoscopy a couple years ago. Um, So, but what's it like undergoing a colonoscopy at the age of 10? Yeah. So I had my colonoscopy when I was in the hospital. So I think from that perspective, there was a lot more support than there would have been if I had to prep at home. Um, It's really just involved drinking something that tasted absolutely disgusting. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then being a little bit uncomfortable for a couple of hours. Um, But I think that because, like I said, I was in the hospital, it wasn't too bad of an experience because there was a lot of support from the nursing staff um, and from the physicians who were explaining, you know, we're doing this test to find out whether or not it is IBD. So I think just knowing the purpose behind why I had to drink such a bad thing was good at the time. Um, But yeah, in the 
colonoscopies I've had after that, I've had a, a lot. I don't even know how many I've had at this point in time. Um, yeah, it only gets better over time. You find out which prep works for you. Um, my favorite prep is Pico Salax. Shout out. Oh, <laughs> I was just going to ask. Okay. Um, yeah, I've tried a lot of different preps. Um, there is a very, very bad one that I think it's called peg light, whichever one comes in like the big four liter or two liter jug. Don't do that one. That's the one I had. It was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of liquid. Like you wouldn't even drink that much water in a day. I mean, if you do, that's amazing. Hydrated. Yes. But <laughs> probably not. You wouldn't even drink that much water. So to drink a lot of something that tastes horrible is really tough to do. Yes. Um, and then the Pico Salax in comparison is just two little sachets of some nice like orange tasting powder you dissolve it in water um and you only have to do that twice in a day and then that's all the prep so it's really really nice in comparison to the other preps I would have to say so it's only two pills and it actually like it tastes good like it tastes like a has a nice flavor to it yeah yeah as nice as it as nice as it can get so it's like it's not really a pill. It's like a dissolvable liquid and then you mix it with water. Um, oh, and liquid. then, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just two times throughout the day. I think you dissolve it with like 500 mils of water or whatever the instructions say. Um, it does taste like, okay, still not the greatest, um, but it has scarred me from like other drinks. So now if I drink something that's like fizzy and a little bit fruity flavored, I'm like, no, colonoscopy prep. No, I can't. Oh no. (laughs) So it has scarred me in other realms, but it's been good for what, what it's supposed to do. Okay. Yeah. That's actually something that at least being, so I'm quite new to, you know, also colitis being diagnosed in 2020. And I had no idea that there was different types of colonoscopy preps. So this is really eye-opening. I, I had no idea about Pico Salix. I did the peg light. So just for some context, you basically had, it sounds like, you know, the 500 or you had like glasses of water that you dissolved it in. Yeah. For peg light, you're right. It's the big jug. And I had to drink, I think it was four liters. And I just kept filling up water bottles. And it took me like eight hours, but I had to get through it throughout the day. And uh, it was very bitter. So uh, I'm glad to hear that, you know, there's there's a better alternative out there. So for anyone listening... Sounds yeah. like Pico Salix. Well, explore the options. Explore the <laughs> options. Where we can't give medical advice, but explore your <laughs> colonoscopy um, prep options. Um, yeah. Any other tips you may have for colonoscopies, and or just being a young person, kind of undergoing a colonoscopy? Because I remember, so I did mine in in the middle of a pandemic, and uh, also just being like the youngest person. I remember everyone was significantly older than me, um, and it just made me feel a little out of place. So, just wondering if you have any tips on, you know. I don't know, undergoing colonoscopies as a young person. Yeah, it's definitely strange. I have, I've had the exact same experience. You roll up to the room and then they think that your parents, like I remember my mom brought me one time and they were like, oh yeah, are you here for a colonoscopy? You're driving her home, right? And it's like, no, I'm the patient. Um, It's weird being in adult care when you can, when you're 18, for example, like 18 compared to some of the other people that are getting scoped, you're so young. Um, I would just say, um, just from an outlook perspective, just know that you're having to do it for a reason at the end of the colonoscopy, you're going to have answers that you won't necessarily have with other tests. So there is a reason behind doing it. It's not just a horrible experience. (laughs) Um, it doesn't have to be horrible, but you know what I mean? It's not just a bad experience. It can 
it's going to lead to answers. And I think that having that outlook is a good thing to keep in mind when going into a scope. And then in terms of, I guess, other prep tips, I would say, try to have a variety of liquids around. So for example, for the Pico Salex prep, you have to drink like a liter of water or something, maybe not a liter, maybe like 500 mils every hour. Mm -hmm. So that can be a lot of boringness um, yes. <laughs> over time. So I would say, try to have some variety, try to have some like, um, flavored Gatorade. You have to be careful of the colors though. So make sure you check, um, flavored Gatorade, um, apple juice, chicken broth, like just different flavors and textures. You can have jello too. Um, that kind of mixes things up. So I, yeah, that would be my advice. Anything that tastes good, really, it sounds like yeah. it. That's not the, the main drink. Exactly. Um, so now, you know, both of us, we've been living with ulcerative colitis. You've been living with it for such a long time. Um, and I, I'm still quite new to this and, you know, learning how to navigate everything. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, over your experience and your journey with this since the beginning, what are some challenges that you feel that you face living with an invisible illness? So. Um just the way that the disease presents itself, I also find to be very difficult to deal with. So with living with IBD, you're not sick all the time. It kind of comes and goes in periods of what we call flare-ups when you're really sick and remission. So for me, something that I struggle with is not being able to know when I'm going to be sick next. So this makes it really difficult. I'm a planner. I'm very type A. I like to plan out my life. Yes. <laughs> I like to plan out travel pre-COVID, obviously. Um, but I just like to plan what I'm doing with my life. And it's hard to look at a calendar and say, you know what, six months from now, I might be able to commit now. But later on, I don't know if I'm going to be sick or not. Um, and I've just learned to embrace the periods of remission and try to have a positive outlook on that and really just try to maximize what I can do in those periods of remission. Um, like go on long walks, do things that I can't necessarily do in a flare because I don't know when the next flare is coming. So I really try to live life to the fullest. I guess it's taught me to do that in those periods where I am feeling well. Um, so that's one, one part that I find really, really difficult to deal with. Um, but yeah, the invisible illness thing is a whole other side of the disease. And it's really difficult to be a very healthy looking 26 year old who is using, for example, the disabled toilets. So one, one time when I was doing a summer abroad, I was living in England um, and in England, they have these things called satellite keys, which you get through the national health services that anyone with a chronic illness who needs emergency access to a toilet can get. So I got one for my trip, for my time abroad, thought it would be useful to have, and it did come in handy. Um, but every time I went to go use a disabled toilet, I got looks and sometimes even confrontations. So it's just, confrontations. you know, <laughs> yeah, like, um, yeah, one time specifically, I was in a train station and there was a really long line for the washroom. And I wouldn't use the disabled toilet unless I really needed to. So I was like, I'm not going to make it if I have to wait in this line. So took that as an opportunity to use it. Um, and yeah, some lady shouted at me in the train station that I was not disabled and I shouldn't be using the disabled toilet. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just difficult because so many people, don't realize that there are so many disabilities beyond 
mobility disabilities. Like just because I'm not in a wheelchair, that doesn't mean that I'm not disabled. There's a lot of other ways that disability presents itself. So then I noticed in another washroom, it actually had a sign beside it that said, not all disabilities are visible. So I'm glad that sign was there. At least. Yeah, I just thought that was a really nice like advocacy piece. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it is very difficult. It's challenging to convince people that you need the supports that you need. For example, in university, if you are approaching a prof and you're saying, I'm really ill, I need an extension on an assignment. Here are the accommodations that I have. They're like, but you don't look sick. It's just such a disheartening thing to have to continue to advocate for yourself and to make people believe that just because you can't see what's going on inside me, I am really sick and I do have a disease at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's really shocking to hear that experience with, with the lady in, in the washroom. But I'm glad at least, you know, there's advocacy starting to recognize the importance of, you know, that not all illnesses are visible. And, and also, I think just in general, with digestive illnesses, there's still quite a lot of, I feel like, stigma, taboo, you know, they're embarrassing, as you mentioned earlier. So I think it's hard for people to understand just how debilitating like these illnesses can be and how much they can impact your quality of life. Yeah. Um, and especially because it's not visible, everything is happening internally. Do you, what are your thoughts? Do you see, you know, improvements being made? Like what, what's your take? Yeah, I do. I do think that it has made strides in the past couple of years. The incident that I described that happened, happened in 2017. And I already feel like from then till now, there has been some advances. I think that to me, knowledge is power and knowledge is the ultimate way to get awareness across. So if somebody doesn't know what IBD is, they're not going to know why you need to use a toilet, why you need to use a disabled toilet on an emergent basis. Um, so I think just educating the general public about what does it mean to have inflammatory bowel disease? What kind of accommodations do these people need to be able to function at the same level as somebody who is um, not facing these illnesses? Um, just being able to spread the word about IBD to, for example, educators, the people that are offering the accommodations to you, um, just to the general public. I think social media is a great outlet um, for trying to get the word out about IBD um, and just being able to come to your own understanding of IBD. I think that is the first step in being able to break down the barriers that individuals with invisible illnesses face. Absolutely. And, and Claudia, I do have to say, I'm just going to quickly uh, plug your Instagram because I found you on Instagram and I think it's fantastic. It's um, this girl has guts and there's period and periods in between each word. And uh, yeah, you've made some, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier with having that community support, mm -hmm. knowing that other people are going through the same, you know, invisible illness or, or just something invisible is, I think it's, it's really empowering. Um, so actually something I wanted to ask you was, cause you know, you mentioned you did some traveling, uh, while you had IBD. So, but, uh, what was your experience like traveling with a chronic illness? Cause I've personally been a little hesitant. Like how do you manage medication regimens and physical health, even mental health? How does that all work while on vacation? Yeah, it is. It is very difficult and a source of anxiety for me, like still to this day, um, but I think just being able to be as prepared as possible will kind of mitigate those travel-related anxieties as much as possible. So for example, first you want to think about your medications. What kind of 
medications are you on? Are you on something that's every four weeks and then the window will be nice with your two week trip? Um, or are you on something that you need to take every day that you need to bring with you and need to make sure that you have enough supply of? For me, when I did that summer abroad, I was on a medication called Intivio, which I was receiving every eight weeks and I went away for three months. Oh. So if you do the math, that means that I needed to have an infusion mm -hmm. yet yeah, while I was away. Um, and I had moved some of the infusions that I had earlier to make sure I only needed to have one infusion instead of two when I was away. I brought the medication with me. I made the connections before I traveled. Um, I was living in York in England, which is in Northern England. Um, I had to travel though to get my infusion in Leeds, which was like a half an hour train station away. I don't even remember how I did it. I was working with my um, my coordinator, my medications coordinator. So if you have one of those through um, the patient support programs, through medications, you can talk to them or through your nurse or your physician to try to get some sort of letters or support there. And we made a connection with this hospital booked me in for an appointment. Um, so I had to travel with the medication and then they infused me obviously for a cost because it wasn't covered over by my travel insurance or student insurance, whatever I had at the time. Um, so I did have to pay out of pocket for it, but it was just something that I kind of managed before I left and was able to make it through the summer, thankfully, <laughs> without needing any further medical attention. That was it. Um, that's definitely a big relief for sure. Yeah. Something I do struggle with traveling though, is access to washrooms. I like knowing where washrooms are, how I'm going to be able to access them going to places like in Europe, where sometimes you need to pay to access a toilet that can be really frustrating. Um, if you don't have a euro on you, you can't use the toilet. Like it physically won't open. Um, so I guess just being able to research beforehand, what, the washroom policies like what's the general culture around washrooms in that in that country that you're traveling to um if you wanted to you could even map out um to see where washrooms are if there's something that that country can offer you for example that key that i got in england if there's something that they give to patients with ibd to make washroom access a little bit easier in that country that's something that you can also look for um but yeah, I think ultimately just being able to do your research and be prepared ahead of time is key. Yeah, there's a lot of pre-planning, I think, that anyone, I guess this probably extends to other chronic invisible illnesses as well. Just a lot of, I mean, despite how unpredictable they are, there's just, we do have to plan certain, you know, when to take medications. And yeah. it's just an extra thing to think about when you have to travel or, you know, go through a, a, a big event. Um so you mentioned that you actually worked with a medication coordinator to help you kind of work everything out while you were in England. So I'm not actually familiar with medication coordinators. Is this just like an IBD thing? I don't know. Do they operate in other fields or like what's the process of working with them? What was that experience like? Yeah, that's a good question. So that was something that I was or someone that I was put in contact with when I started a biologic medication. So I was on Remicade even before Solara and then Intibio. But it's something that I always had when I started a biologic medication. So my physician put me in contact with um, a coordinator through a patient support program. So normally they work for the drug company that the drug is associated with. So for example, Remicade is made by Janssen, I believe. So they were working out of that company. Um, and that person is basically just supposed to help you get your insurance sorted for that drug. 
Um, if you don't have insurance, they are supposed to help you look for medications to cover the drug. So for example, sometimes you can get medication on what's called compassionate release, um, which means that the government just takes care of the funding for whatever medication you're on for a certain period of time. And they can also help organize these things like travel, or if you get medications delivered to your home, that's something that they can also help with. And they ultimately put you in contact with an infusion center or a nurse who ultimately administers the medication that you're on. So they can actually be quite a handy little gem in the healthcare community that not a lot of people know about. Um, and I'm sure it exists for other medications and other conditions because I believe it's just medication or pharmaceutical company specific. So I'm sure something like that would also exist for others. Yeah, th this is definitely a new resource for me. I never came across a medication um, coordinator in my short journey, at least. So this is definitely, I think, something that will help a lot of patients, especially because, you know, it's so challenging to navigate through the healthcare system. You know, it's nice when there's these kind of these links, these liaisons that kind of mediate your path as a patient. Um, you mentioned you've taken biologics, um, but how about any, so biologics are infusions from what I understand, but prior to biologics, were you on any pills? Because I've had some past experience with cordamins and I'm taking Pencasa right now. Um, and something that I found personally just so difficult was just the sheer amount of pills. I have to take like seven pills, going from zero pills to like all of a sudden taking seven huge, really big pills, um, I found quite challenging. I don't know, did you ever have that experience of taking like pill, like medication in pill form? And, and what was that like for you? Yeah, I would say like some advice for that is to get yourself a little pill box. The cuter, the better, whatever is going to make you feel excited about taking your medication. Um, and or whatever helps. Whatever helps. <laughs> I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Um, and organize them by day. Maybe you do it on a Sunday, get yourself set up for the week. And then you know that you're good to go. I was also on steroids for a really long time, which is a brutal drug to be on. Oh, but the side effects are just moon face and everything. I yeah, can't even imagine. You wouldn't even recognize me on steroids versus me now. It's like a completely different person. But that was like eight pills a day. Did you happen to take prednisone? Yes. Yeah, I was on prednisone. Oh, yeah. no. What was that? Like that, that I've been trying to like avoid, to be honest. That's why I took my GI told me to take cordamint because yeah. it's localized. Yeah, it was not fun. <laughs> not fun. So that was like eight, eight pills a day at the beginning. And then you slowly taper it down. Um, but there was a long period of time when I had a big flare up in university where I couldn't wean off the steroids. So every time I went down to three or four pills, I would get sick again. Oh. So I was on steroids for probably like a year and a half. I want to say it was a really long, long time yeah. until I found something that worked for me medication wise. Um, yeah. And in terms of the side effects, um, mood for me was a really big thing. So mood things more, more than normal and more than you can just blame on that time of the month. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was a monster, not going to lie. Um, food appetite. I was hungry all the time, which ultimately led to some weight gain. Uh, the moon face was really difficult for me to deal with just from like a social standpoint, like everybody could tell because it's your face, um, that something's going on. Um, obviously everyone kind of attributes it, attributes it to, oh, you're gaining weight. Like 
what are you doing? Not, oh, you're, you look like that because you're really sick. Um, again, going back to the invisible illness difficulties of IBD. Um, yeah. And I just felt like my self-esteem plummeted. I was like, this is not what I normally look like. I also got really bad acne, just uh, everything that you can imagine that you don't want to happen to your body happen. Um, and it's difficult because I was kind of in this rat race where I was running out of medications, medication options. And I had to be on steroids the entire time because as soon as I stopped or tried to take a lesser dose, I was really sick. So for a long time, I was kind of in this dark place where I didn't think that I was going to get better um, until finally I found what worked for me. But yeah, it was tough. For sure. And I, I can't even imagine, you know, just going through an illness is just one thing. And then you have those symptoms there, you know, in terms of GI symptoms, right? You, I guess coming in with Crohn's or colitis, you think, oh, it's just my stomach's going to be upset. It's like, no, there's medication side effects that you didn't think of that happen. And, um, you know, just even there's a lot of um, extra intestinal or extra effects that come with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's that I wasn't aware of, um, even in terms of like, weight loss, hair loss, all that, you know, additional stuff. And then as you mentioned too, the social impacts for me personally, I found it quite, quite devastating because there's all these drastic changes happening to your physical appearance. You feel, you don't feel that well. Um, and then of course you can feel quite uh, stressful socially, right. You know, in terms of just, you know, self-esteem, all that stuff. So um, the social impact of this disease, how have you kind of navigated through, cope with it, and any tips for managing kind of, you know, the social effects of coping with, with colitis? Um, trying to find a community that is going through something similar to you has been paramount in my recovery. So during that flare, I didn't really have anyone other than my family who really knew what I was going through. Um, and that's when I reached out to Crohn's and Colitis Canada and just being able to be in a group of like-minded individuals who know what you're going through, who are working towards a common goal of trying to make this experience better for other patients. I just found that to be really, really helpful. And they also had really good tips on how to cope with living with IBD. A lot of them were a lot older than me, um, have lots of good, good advice to give. So I think being involved in a broader community bigger than yourself is great. Um, and also being able to be involved in peer support groups, if that's something that's of interest to you. So you can get more one-on-one -on -one or group support. Um, and ultimately, I think don't shy away from the idea of seeking help uh, from a mental health professional, if that's something that you really need. Um, then also I found that stress was a really big trigger for my IBD. So being able to work with a psychologist through healthy stress coping strategies that I still carry with me to this day has been really, really helpful. So that was a really long-winded answer. But yeah, I guess to summarize how I deal with the social aspect um, is being able to educate the people around you, being able to have good community and social supports, and ultimately seeking help um, from a registered therapist or a mental health specialist specifically has been really great in that aspect of the disease for me. In terms of mindfulness or anything, is there any kind of stress tips and coping with IBD? Because stress definitely has a profound impact. I feel it all the time on, on my GI tract. Any tips on stress and mindfulness and coping with IBD? Yeah. 
Uh, that's a great question. Something that I'm still trying to work towards and I'm still not a hundred percent on. Um, but I think that the last flare, so the one that I'm talking about, that was when I was in the third or fourth year of my undergrad, I was just taking on way too many things, um, and not setting boundaries for myself. Um, I get excited by a lot of opportunities. I was like very much a yes person. I was scared of saying no to things. It's a skill. Um, Learning to say no is truly a skill. It's an art and it's a science. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it very much so, but yeah, just being able to say no, not overexert yourself, really only do the things that you're super passionate for that, you know, you're going to have the time and energy for, um, there's something called like the spoony theory of chronic illness where you only have a certain number of spoons to give in a day. And once you run out of spoons, that's it. So be careful where you spend your spoons. Um, so I just always go back to that and think, okay, is this something that I actually do have the time and energy for? Um, and being able to say no, if it's something that I know I can't take on. So that in and of itself has helped me with stress immensely, just having less to do and being less busy in general. Um, And also I try to incorporate some sort of mindfulness or movement on a daily basis. I also got a puppy. (laughs) Don't recommend that for everyone, but um, yeah, he, he's been great from a mental health perspective, but also from, for dragging me outside for walks. So yeah, just moving, um, being able to say no and ultimately prioritizing yourself. I think that's something that's really hard for me to do, especially when I find myself feeling very overwhelmed and very busy. It's hard for me to say, okay, I need to stop and take 20 minutes out of my day to do something for me. It's easier said than done, but I think you're on a good path. It sounds like it. Um, and just last question for you, Claudia. So what is one important message that you feel that you would like our listeners to know? Yeah, I think maybe something related to the invisible illness aspect, Um, maybe just to think for a couple seconds before you judge someone, you never really know what somebody else is going through. Um, Really try to exercise some compassion or empathy and think of alternative reasons why a person could be doing something um, before you impart some sort of judgment. That would be my takeaway. Thank you so much to Claudia Tersini for being a part of our conversation today. You can find more information on our website at impactgap.wordpress.com or follow us on our Twitter and Instagram at impact underscore gap. If you have a story that you'd like to share and are interested in joining us as a guest, you can contact us at impactgap.gmail.com.